The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church. Of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Today's teaching comes from FIBC Senior Pastor. Senior Pastor, N. Eric Nielsen. Who do you call when you need a specialist? Funnily enough, every time I go on a trip somewhere, uh, something happens at home where my wife has to take care of some kind of issue or problem. Um, in the past, uh, when I was away, uh, we had rats in the house. So who do you call? You call, of course, the exterminator, who um, wasn't quite convinced that there were rats, but uh, there were rats. One time I was away and the children got locked in the bathroom. <laughs> who do you call? You call my dad who lives next door. Well, of course, I was away just Thursday and Friday and guess what happened at home? The toilet flooded. Water all over the, uh, the bathroom and uh, Luke down in the basement noticed there was dripping from uh, his uh, ceiling. So who do you call then? Of course, I'm in Hamburg, I'm calling the plumber, and I'm calling the insurance company. Who do you call when you need a specialist? Well, who does God call when he needs a mouthpiece? Who does God call when he needs to speak a word of encouragement, a word of rebuke, maybe comfort, maybe simply hope to give to someone else? See, I believe all of us need to be a little bit like Samuel. And today, in our journey through the Old Testament, we're going to do a brief character study of the man named Samuel. A man who, I believe, was dedicated to the Lord and his word, so that the Lord then used him as his mouthpiece to his people, to those whom he also calls to become his people. And so today we're going to look at the life of Samuel and our journey through the Old Testament. We've now reached the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to have a few slides here just to show you a little bit about the background of 1 Samuel. Um, if you take a look at the next slide. The purpose of Samuel, well, originally it was one book with the book of 2 Samuel, and it basically narrates the historical transition from the judges, which we have just been looking at a couple of weeks ago, uh, to the kings. And that is from Samuel, from his youth, through Saul's kingship and eventually Saul's death. That is essentially the summary of the book of 1 Samuel. There's a timeline here. You can see approximate dates of around 1150 BC when Samuel was born, and uh, up until the time that David became king of all, of all of Israel around 1004 BC, and some of the events that we'll look at in the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, the next slide, please that the theme essentially for the book of Samuel is this, and I hope you'll catch this, that God exalts those who follow after his own heart, and he humbles those who do not. Remember that, that God exalts those who follow after his own heart and humbles those who do not. And my hope is, of course, that each one of us here would say, well, I hope that God would exalt me simply because I follow after his own heart and that he wouldn't have to humble me. And then the next slide, please. So the outline for these next three sermons, we've titled these next three sermons with the three of us on staff who are preaching them. Samuel, the last of the judges, where we cover chapters one through eight, where God is calling Samuel as judge. And then Saul, the handsome king, 
preached by Austin, where God calls Austin as king and God rejects Aust uh, Saul as king, excuse me. And then David, a king in the making. Now, almost as if I had planned it this way, isn't it appropriate that I'm preaching on the last of, of the judges, that our handsome pastor is teaching on the handsome king, and that uh, the king in the making uh, is being taught by our intern. I thought that was a pretty interesting way of looking at things and the three different preachers you'll be hearing from. So today, we're going to look simply at the life of Samuel, and you can turn that off. Uh, thank you, Kudzai. Um, and try to draw three principles, at least. Three principles from three different parts of his life. The first part of his life was even before he was born. Some of you may be familiar with the story of his mother, Hannah. And the second principle from the second part of his life, his childhood, his calling as a child, as a young boy. And then thirdly, the third principle we'll draw from part of his life is from his adult ministry. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1 with me. I um, don't know what happened to my Bible. I think I may have left it at home. So if I get lost, it's because I'm looking through someone else's Bible, uh, namely my wife's Bible. But I'll also try to basically summarize a lot of it for you. And uh, hopefully I'll, I've included the quotes in my own notes here as well. But the story of Samuel begins even before he was born. And that's the first part of his life I want you to notice. It begins before he was conceived, and it begins with his mother named Hannah. Samuel's father was named Elkanah, and he had two wives. Now you already can tell that there's going to be problems. He had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah was able to conceive, but Hannah was barren. And the author of 1 Samuel points out that it was the Lord who had closed her womb. Now, I want you to have to understand that for a woman in those days, in the ancient Near East, to not be able to bear children was very significant, far more significant than it would be for us today. For her to not bear, be able to bear children was significant, and it affected her self-worth greatly. Because children were symbols of fulfillment. They were symbols of fruitfulness. Now, every year, Elkanah would take his family to the Lord's altar in Shiloh, and there he would worship and he would offer sacrifices. And during those times, Elkanah would, would uh, treat Hannah special because of his love for her. And he would try to console her because of her barrenness. Well, Peninnah, the other wife, used Hannah's barrenness as a reason to provoke her. So it doesn't surprise us that Hannah grew very bitter. Not only was she barren, but now her rival was also provoking her. And the author says that Peninnah provoked her until she wept and, could, and would not eat. And as much as Elkanah, the good husband, tried, he could not convince her to eat. And sadly, because of her bitterness, she even missed out on the special grace that was coming from her loving husband, the special attention that he would give her. And as bitter as she was, she finally decided she would bring her request to the Lord and make a vow to dedicate her first son to the Lord. And it says in chapter 1, verse 10, she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Verse 11, she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affection of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. So the Bible says that it was in bitterness of soul. She wept much. 
and she prayed to the Lord. And in her prayer, she offered then the one thing that she desired that would fulfill her life, she offered it back to the Lord. And when she says that no razor will ever be used on his head, it's a reference to the Nazarite vow given in Numbers chapter 6, a vow of dedication. There were special prohibitions of those who were dedicated to the Lord with a Nazarite vow. Prohibitions like not having any wine or strong drink or drinking anything that was produced from the grapevine and a prohibition against cutting their hair or touching the dead. So it meant a separation, a holiness. She was offering back to the Lord that which she most wanted herself. And her prayer was apparently so emotional that Eli the priest began to notice. And Eli thought she was drunk. But in fact, she says, I was deeply troubled, pouring out my soul to the Lord, praying here out of my great anguish and grief. So we shouldn't underestimate, first of all, how much Hannah's barrenness had affected her emotionally. Unable to eat, unable to be um, encouraged by her own husband, pouring out her heart, deeply troubled. And at the conclusion of her prayer, everything changed for her. Eli says to her, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. And it was enough then to lift her spirits. Her face changed and it wasn't downcast anymore and it wasn't because she had a facelift. She was no longer downcast. She was a changed woman. And in due time, as the Bible says, she conceived. She gave birth to a son, called him Samuel, which it sounds like the Hebrew word for God has heard. And when Samuel was weaned, she fulfilled her vow by bringing Samuel to Eli and Shiloh, saying in verse 28 of chapter 1, Now I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he, that is Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. And Samuel then grew up in Eli's care, ministering before the Lord, wearing the priestly garment. Each year, his parents would come, like they always had, and bring a new robe for Samuel. So he grew up in, in Eli's care and not in his own parents' care. And interestingly, Eli had his own two sons. And the author records that those two sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord, even though they were also priests. They treated with contempt the offerings that were brought by the people. They committed adultery with the women who came to bring the offerings and who served at the entrance of the tabernacle. And they didn't listen to the rebuke of their father. And eventually the Lord took their lives. But Samuel, Samuel was different under Eli's care. It says in verse 26 of chapter 22 that the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Now, the thing I want us to learn from this is, is how Hannah's perspective and her destiny changed when she was willing to finally surrender to the Lord that which was most precious and valuable to her. Remember, having children was everything to her. Having children meant so much to her personally that she was unable to sense the grace of God in anything else. Her bitterness against the Lord for having closed her womb made her the easy target of that rival wife. And although she went to the Lord year after year, it was only here in this instance, as we read here, that she finally brings her plight to the Lord. She finally pours out her heart and soul to the Lord, surrendering the one thing that she considered as the most important thing to her. It's hard for us to understand what that's like. I know that for us, we were barren for at least three and a half years. All we wanted was to have children. Some of you know this story. Instead of having children, my wife had to have a, an operation where she lost part of her fallopian tube. 
So now we're only working with half of her reproductive side. And as you know, my children, it's the boy's side of her reproductive system. And we went to the Lord in prayer as well and surrendered the whole thing to the Lord too. And as you know the story, some of you, now we have five boys. It's a miracle. It's amazing that that would happen. And we wondered to the Lord, now, Lord, uh, when will it stop? <laughs> now you've made her so fruitful. And in Hannah's case, when she was able to look beyond herself, beyond her own desire for a child to be fulfilled by the Lord's purposes instead for a son, then she was able to trust him. Notice that her contentment and her joy was restored not when Samuel was born, not when Samuel was conceived, no, as she left her time of prayer with the Lord. Then her countenance already changed. She already trusted the Lord even before the fulfillment of her request, demonstrating that her perspective changed when she surrendered her desire to him. Her prayer after the fulfillment of her request, you'll see in chapter 2, once Samuel was born, her delight was in his deliverance. Her confidence was in the Lord's knowledge, his wisdom and his sovereignty, and she declared with praise his ability to do the impossible. She had seen it firsthand. And the result was a child who would then grow up to be used mightily by the Lord, uniquely playing an immeasurable significant part during a very significant time in the history of God and his people. So a good lesson, I believe, from the life of Hannah is surrender to the Lord that which is most precious to you. It's far better in his hands, even if you have to surrender your whole life to him. Because whatever seems to you to be the most precious thing to you could be very well the hindrance in your relationship to the Lord and the hindrance in you experiencing his grace. You're simply blinded to all the other things he's doing in your life. And that unfulfilled desire that's making you bitter against the Lord, that could very well be the desire that he will only fulfill when you're willing to surrender it to him. He may be holding back that very thing you're wanting until you finally come to him and pour out your soul and let go of your control of the situation and your possession of it and exchange that with trust and confidence in him. So whatever it is that you think is most precious to you, it is far more significant in his hands than yours. And you get to experience, like Hannah did, the sovereign wisdom and might of the Lord in your life. So I ask you today, what is it that you're still holding on to? Is there an unfulfilled desire that you, that's making you bitter or even hindering your relationship with God? Whether it's your career or employment or a desire for a spouse or desire for children or your possessions or if it's a person that's leading you into sin, if you're willing to surrender your lives and God is able to use whatever it is that's precious to you for purposes that are far greater than we could have ever imagined. So that's one of the lessons from the early part of Samuel's life, even before he was born, and now I want to look at his calling. You'll find it in chapter 3, because Samuel was called to the office of prophet, and God would speak to his people through him already as a boy. Samuel, as I said, grew up under Eli. It was a time when it says in chapter, one, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, that the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. The Lord was present through his ark, the symbol of his presence, and we'll see in a moment that the ark became associated not only with the presence of the Lord, but it was almost treated in a way that was superstitious rather than an exercise of faith. But Eli was now old, so weak that he could hardly see anymore, and that was when God began to call Samuel. 
It took Eli a while before he realized it. Some of you know the story. The Lord calls to Samuel while Samuel is lying down. And Samuel hears the audible voice, mistakes it for Eli's voice. He comes up to Eli and says, here I am, you called me. And Eli says, no, I didn't call you, go lie down again. It took three times that the Lord called to Samuel before Eli realized it was the Lord speaking to him. And the author records as well, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. In other words, that's why Samuel didn't recognize yet that it was the Lord's voice. He mistook it as being Eli's voice. Finally, Eli tells him how to respond when he hears that voice calling again. So when Samuel is called a fourth time, he responds as instructed, and the Lord reveals something terrible that's about to happen to Eli's sons, not only as a judgment for their sins, as I described before, the sins that he, they had committed, but also to, con to confirm Samuel's role. He was going to be a prophet of God. And to be trusted as a prophet of God, those things that you spoke had to be fulfilled. So God was going to reveal something to Samuel that would soon be fulfilled, and Samuel would be established as a prophet of God. The principle I gained from this, I believe that we should learn to recognize the voice of the Lord. You know, you and I today, we live in a day when the voice or the word, when the word of the Lord is near. It isn't rare. We have it in our Bibles on our coffee tables and on our desks and in our electronic devices. The word of the Lord today is near. When Moses was speaking to the Israelites back in the Old Testament, the commandments that he gave them, he said, now the word of the Lord is near to you. It's not out of reach where someone has to ascend to heaven or cross the seas. The word of the Lord is near to you. It is in your mouth and in your hearts so that you may observe it. And that was the very statement that Paul gave when he wrote to the Romans. He said, the word of faith that we're proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, that word is near us today. That good news has been preached and we have heard the voice of God. If we have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then the word of the Lord is quite literally in our mouths as we confess, and in our hearts as we believe. So the voice of God has already called each of us to salvation in Jesus Christ. And you have hopefully heard God speak through his written word of Jesus Christ when God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And hopefully you too have heard Jesus say that he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Hopefully you're here today because you have believed in Jesus' death on the cross, that it is sufficient for your sins as a sacrifice, and that his resurrection on the third day demonstrates his power over death and hell. Now what did Jesus say to those who believed in him, his disciples? That loving him is all about keeping his word. Being a disciple is all about being sanctified by the Word of God. And so when you look at the book of Acts, as the disciples go out into the world, what is it that they are preaching? They are preaching the Word of God. They pray for boldness to speak your word with all confidence. And who are they that are baptized? Those who have, quote, received his word. What is it that kept on spreading throughout the book of Acts? It is the Word of God that kept on spreading. 
as the apostles and those who were persecuted, they scattered, it says that they went about preaching the word so that the lives of those in those regions far beyond were beginning to be transformed because they received the word of God as well. Friends, the word of God is near today. It isn't scarce. And God chooses to use those who have received the word to be his mouthpiece to preach the word. And in some ways, we are that modern-day Samuel or Samuela who have heard the voice of God call us by name. In a way, we have said to him, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Each day, it's a matter of us keeping his word because we love him. If anyone loves me, Jesus said, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That's speaking of nearness. That's speaking of intimacy, that the word of the Lord is with us. He will obey my teaching, and we will make our home with him, as it says in the NIV. And you and I today, we have the luxury of the written word, preserved and printed for us, available to us in a language that we can understand in our mother tongue. All of us can read it and understand it without much effort. And so it's for us, it's hard to appreciate a time when the word of the Lord is scarce, isn't it? When visions are few, when it is rare, but like Samuel, you and I should be listening for that voice of God. Will we recognize it when he speaks? Because we need to respond to his word. And like in Samuel's life, God will confirm his word through our obedience and our faithfulness. The things that the Lord has revealed will come to pass. And as you look at the end of chapter 3, verse 19, it says that thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. All Israel from Dan, that's up in the north, even to Beersheba down in the south, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So the second principle I believe that we can learn from this part of Samuel's life is that we should be modern-day Samuels, able to hear God's word and ready to proclaim it. And then, throughout his adult life, during his rule as a judge, Israel was victorious over their enemies. They prospered under his rule. During Samuel's leadership, they conquered the, the Philistines, and the nation prospered. Now first, if you read in chapter 4, you'll notice that the Philistines were first victorious. They went to battle against the Israelites, because the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant into the battlefield with the sons of Eli, and they were expecting that the presence of the Ark would mean that they would win the battle. They all gave a great shout, excited that now the presence of the Lord was with them in the battlefield. The Philistines got scared, so they attacked Israel. And unfortunately, in this case, they won, and they took the Ark with them, while Eli's two sons died, just as God's judgment had said they would. And then what's interesting, if you read this account, is a series of interesting things happen while the Philistines have the Ark of the Lord. If you've never read it, you'll probably be scratching your head, but first of all, they place the Ark of the Lord in the same temple with their god, Dagon. And that when they would come to the temple, they would realize that that idol had fallen to the ground. It couldn't remain standing in the ark, uh, next to the ark in their temple. And then the Philistines in their village of Ashdod, they suffered from tumors, so they moved the ark to Gath. Then those people suffered from tumors, so they, be, they moved it to Ekron, and then those people began to suffer tumors, and the city began to panic. And so they decided to send the ark 
of the Lord back to Israel. We don't want this thing. And they put it on a, uh, they hitched it to two cows that had never been hitched before, and the cows somehow went straight to Beth Shemesh in Israel. And then things began to happen to the Israelites who took possession of the ark. First of all, 70 tried to look into it, and they were killed. And then the ark was transported to Kiriath Jerem, where it stayed in Abinadab's house. Now, it says that after a period of 20 years, Samuel began a revival. And it is that revival that became a catalyst to the victory over the Philistines. Samuel instructed the people of Israel in chapter 7. If you turn there with me. In verse 3, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the ashtoreths from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Well, as the story continues, they finally gain victory over the Philistines, and the country prospers. So what Samuel did there was he turned the people's hearts back to the Lord. A revival began among God's own people. And I believe that today, it's also the time for a revival among God's covenant people. We know that the harvest is ready. Jesus already said in his day, the harvest is plentiful. When crowds would gather to Jesus, he, he looked upon them with compassion. He could see they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Friends, people are that way today as well. Do we have eyes of compassion? Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And then he sent his disciples out to the villages. You and I are those disciples being sent out for the harvest. Maybe it's time for us to look up and see with eyes of compassion that the fields are white, that the, sheep, that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. We know Christ is going to return soon. We don't know how soon, but it's pictured in Revelation as an angel with a sickle sweeping over the earth and gathering the grapes that are going to be thrown into the great winepress of God's wrath. So there will come a harvest where those who are being saved will come into the kingdom and those who are not saved will be condemned. So who will the Lord use today? Who will be his mouthpiece today to bring a word that either convicts or corrects? Maybe a word that proclaims good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners? Maybe it's a word that is able to save eternally those who will receive it. Well, friends, judgment begins with the family of God. We know that. And so I believe that a return to the Lord begins with us. As the Israelites did to confess our sins, put away the false gods of this modern age, We've been ensnared by and recommitting ourselves to the Lord and His Word. In Samuel's day, the people of God were also a political nation. So revival meant also a military victory. But friends, today Jesus is building a spiritual kingdom. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemies are the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Does God still intend to conquer His enemies? I believe so. Does he still intend to use his covenant people to do so? I believe so. 
But the question is, when God wants to use the mouthpiece, who will it be? Are we ready to see the Lord answer when we come to him and confess our sins? The Lord answered the Israelites with loud thunder and the Philistines scattered. I wonder what would happen if we return to the Lord and the Lord decides to show up, transforming sinners into saints, breathing hope to the despairing, and bringing the dead to life again. So who's ready to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening? So as I close, I just want to quickly review. In Samuel's dedication before his birth, I ask you, is there something that you need to surrender to the Lord to? If he's going to use you, perhaps something has to first be surrendered. Because whatever it is that you're surrendering to him, it is much better and greater in his hands than ours. And like Samuel's calling during his childhood, are we actively listening to the voice of God? Letting his word be firmly established in our life. And if not, why not? And like in Samuel's ministry as an adult, are we ready to be used to bring revival, beginning with the people of God? Let us pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.vk or facebook.com forward slash FIBCCPH. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.